Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 19th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present the final segment of our presentation of the prophecy of Zechariah. And we have subtitled this segment quite provokingly, Prophet of the Holocaust, because that is what Zechariah is, although there are plenty of other prophecies of a final holocaust elsewhere in scripture. This is the tenth and final segment of our presentation of the prophecy of Zechariah. We will not attempt to summarize what we have seen thus far in its entirety, but we shall mention that throughout the entire book of the prophet, it is fully evident that Zechariah's writing not only contains messianic prophecies, not only contains prophecies which allude to Christ, but rather, in every way, Zechariah is a messianic prophet. In his opening chapters, he, his writings employ the two, two chief figures of the Jerusalem of his time, Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest, as types for Christ, in order to make prophecies concerning both Christ and the nature of his enemies and other aspects of his earthly ministry. And many other similar prophecies concerning Christ are found throughout the subsequent chapters. There's practically a messianic prophecy in every chapter of Zechariah, and in some chapters there's more than one. It should also be evident that aside from the coming of the Messiah, a primary subject of Zechariah's prophecy is the tribes of Israel in their captivity. And aside from statements here and there which may be which may pertain to the seventy weeks kingdom in part, the Jerusalem of Zechariah is representative of the people of Israel spread abroad in their captivity. Zechariah frequently spoke of these people as they had already been scattered also promising that they would greatly increase in their numbers, and fully inferring that these things were indeed accomplished by his own time, as he often used the past tense in relation to those people who had been taken away by the Assyrians and the captivity of Egypt. And I'm specifically referring to Zechariah chapter 10, verse 8, where it says that in their captivity they would increase in their numbers. None of these prophecies have anything to do with the people now called Jews, although Jews are mentioned at the very end of the book. Additionally, in chapter 11 of this prophecy, we are informed through the prophet that Yahweh God had broken the covenant which he had made with the people. Of course, the people had already broken the covenant with him, which was noticed in the words of the earlier prophets, and for that reason he was compelled to break his covenant with them. However, the breaking of the covenant was ultimately accomplished in Yahshua Christ, as Paul had much later explained in Romans chapter 7. So this is also a messianic prophecy. As we saw Zechariah describe in his own words in that chapter, as he related the broken covenant to the thirty pieces of silver for which Christ had been betrayed. But in any event, 
And in spite of the fact that the Jews deny Christ, in Zechariah chapter 11 it is evident that from this time there is no biblical foundation whatsoever for what was later known as Judaism. In the words of the God of the Old Testament himself, there is no longer a testament to stand on unless it be with Christ as the new covenant was also a promise of the old. So the enemies of Christ may deny him all they want, but they cannot rightfully claim to be under a covenant that Yahweh God himself had pronounced was broken. Zechariah had written the latter parts of this prophecy around 518 BC, as the rebuilding of the old city of Jerusalem is commencing, beginning with the temple itself, in chapter 12, the prophet describes all the people of the earth as coming against Jerusalem and how Jerusalem is defended by Yahweh God and is ultimately victorious over all nations, who are in turn all to be destroyed. But the Jerusalem which was about to be rebuilt in Zechariah's time was itself destroyed for good in 70 A.D. Christ had pronounced that it would be left desolate, and the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, informs us that it is the descendants of Esau who would return to rebuild those desolate places. So we see the Edomite Jews in Palestine today, and the city which they call Jerusalem is not the Jerusalem of the God of Israel. It certainly was not the Jerusalem of Zechariah's prophecy, and it is not the Jerusalem which God defended. It was destroyed. So in these closing chapters, once again it is evident that the prophetic Jerusalem is a facet of the people of God spread abroad, and this prophecy has nothing to do with the city in Palestine. Rather, chapters 12 and 13 of Zechariah are suggestive of the spread of the gospel and are also a foreshadow of the revelation of Christ in regards to the second advent and the final destruction of the enemies of God, which is also described in many of the other biblical prophecies. Zechariah chapter 12 describes the mourning of the people of Israel and especially the rulers which are the shepherd tribes of Judah and Levi, as they recognize their sins once they look upon me whom they have pierced, which is another messianic prophecy. But the act of looking upon him whom they had pierced may be fulfilled allegorically, and not necessarily in the literal sense, as men recognize the truth of the gospel of Christ. The prophet then describes that the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in Yahweh of hosts their God. And there are, there we see an indication that in the last days the hearts of the shepherds shall finally be turned to the interest of the sheep. A similar passage, but of broader scope, is found in relation to the same children of Israel in the very same sense, in the last verse of the prophet Malachi. In Zechariah chapter 13, we see yet another multidimensional messianic prophecy, and the underlying message is for us quite significant. We are informed that the day is coming 
when there would be no prophets, and that those who would prophesy are false prophets, whom even their own parents would seek to kill. Then we are told that those who would prophesy would be shepherds instead. And then, in yet another messianic prophecy, we are told that those shepherds would bear the marks of Christ, who was wounded in the house of his friends. Paul of Tarsus elucidates this interpretation for us, where he said to the Galatians, For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus, where it is evident that he is speaking allegorically because he carried the gospel of Christ. As it says in Revelation chapter 19 verse 10, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So there are no legitimate prophets of God outside of those who bear the testimony of Christ. And the prophet Zechariah taught that same thing in the prophecy of this chapter. Zechariah chapter 13. But then, the prophecies in that same chapter turn rather ominous, where it describes the smiting of the shepherd and the scattering and punishment of the sheep. And we also see a multidimensional aspect to this oracle. The smiting of the shepherd is in one sense a messianic prophecy referring to the first advent of the Christ. But seeing that the overall prophecy of Zechariah in these chapters is also related to the time when all of the other nations are gathered against Judah and Jerusalem, it may also refer to the fall of the key of David, the administration of the shepherds of Israel, which is prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 22, and which also seems to be prophesied to occur in these last days. Therefore, Zechariah chapter 13 ends with the warning of the punishments of Yahweh God carried out on the sheep of his pasture, who are the children of Israel scattered abroad. And this last chapter of Zechariah continues in relation to that same thing. Once again, we should note that the chapter division does not interrupt the context of the words of the prophet. The context and topic of the prophecy has not changed since the beginning of chapter 12. And with this we shall commence with Zechariah chapter 14. Behold, the day of Yahweh cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the woman ravished. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And the reference to the day of the Lord is that same day foreseen throughout many of the prophets. The great and terrible day of the Lord mentioned in Joel chapter 2. And the battle of that great day of God Almighty mentioned in Revelation chapter 16. Where the kings of the earth are gathered to battle against Christ and his people. In the patterns of the sin and punishment of the children of Israel in the Old Testament. The children of Israel were carried off into sin, and Yahweh raised up one of the surrounding nations to oppress them, to punish them. Then, when the children of Israel Israel repented in their punishment, Yahweh raised up a leader to throw off the yoke of their oppressors, punishing the oppressors in turn. 
this basic pattern repeats itself until the Israelites are carried off into captivity. And then even the Assyrians and Babylonians who had oppressed them were punished in turn. In the interim, the Israelites and their captivities grew into great nations and multitudes of nations, and those nations returned to their God in Christ, in spite of the fact that they themselves were not cognizant of their original identity, as the scripture portrays their God is saying, Who is blind but my servant? And now in these last days they have once again fallen into apostasy and sin. So the innocent woman representing Israel, which was taken off into the desert to be nourished with the gospel, as John describes in Revelation chapter 12, and as Zechariah described the woman in the ephah here in Zechariah chapter 5, that woman becomes a whore joined to the beast, which John describes in Revelation chapter 17, where he is taken back into the desert to see the woman. Consequently, we see another pattern in the prophets, in places such as Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, and in Revelation chapter 20, as well as here in Zechariah, that in the last days the children of Israel would be oppressed by all of the other peoples of the earth. In Ezekiel, these other people swarm into the mountains of Israel like a storm to cover the land in order to take a spoil, just as we see here in the opening verse of this chapter, that thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. It's being divided right now. In the Revelation, we see the same event described a little differently, where it is said that Satan would go out to gather all the other peoples of the earth against the camp of the saints, the beloved city, Jerusalem scattered abroad, which is also that same prophetic Jerusalem described here in Zechariah. Here in Zechariah, Yahweh informs us that it is he who gathers all nations against Jerusalem, which is also evident in Ezekiel, where Yahweh informs us that it is he who will put hooks into thy jaws, speaking to Gog of the land of Magog, and bring thee forth and all thine army. But in the Revelation in chapter 20, it is Satan who goes out to deceive the nations into compassing the camp of the saints. So just as the Assyrians were the rod of Yahweh's anger against Israel in ancient times, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, and they were ultimately destroyed in turn, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 12, in these last days, the synagogue of Satan is presently being employed to punish the children of Israel and Satan shall be destroyed in turn, just like the Assyrians were destroyed 2,600 years ago. This chapter of Zechariah is another parallelism, describing things which were already described in Zechariah chapter 12, where, for example, the word of Yahweh says in verses 2 and 3, that, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in a siege against both Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it 
shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered against it. So the gathering of the nations against the Jerusalem of Yahweh it is, is described in one way in Zechariah chapters 12 and 13. And then, because this is a parallelism, the same events are described in another way here in chapter 14, where the different, where different aspects of those events are illustrated by the prophet. That is the purpose of such a parallelism. So, because Zechariah chapter 14 really prophecies the same events as Zechariah chapters 12 and 13, which we have already presented, we will repeat ourselves to some degree here, presenting Zechariah chapter 14. It's absolutely necessary. Where in Zechariah chapter 12 it is evident that the rulers of the people have caused the tribes of Israel to be divided one against another, and that they had not acted on behalf of the people, even turning their backs on their God. We are informed in spite of those things that there would be mercy and deliverance. However, that mercy and deliverance would not be without trial, which is indicated at the end of chapter 13 where it says, And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith Yahweh, two parts therein shall be cut off and die but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, Yahweh is my God. Now, there are other prophecies in Daniel, in the Revelation, in Revelation chapter 6, which speak about, in Daniel chapter 8, which speak about a third of the people of God being cut off, a third of the men in the sea being destroyed, and other similar statements. This portion of Zechariah, this last verses of Zechariah chapter 13, certainly accord with them, and they show us that this has been, just like the revelation, has been a process, or actually a series of processes, by which the judgment of God takes place over many centuries and related events. So we see here in Zechariah that this third which is left, this third part which is brought through the fire, is very likely by the same process. So we're still whittling the remnant down to a third. And we pray that it's not whittled down much further. Going back to the final passage of chapter 13 of Zechariah, we read, And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, Yahweh is my God. So it is clear from the words of the prophet that in the end, those of the children of Israel which survived the trials of this age are those who turn to their God through Yahshua Christ. In fact, the passage is reminiscent of the final verses of Hosea chapter 2, where the betrothal of Israel, after Israel was divorced, where the betrothal of Israel 
promised in Christ is also described. That does not mean that in the end of days, some of these people won't die, even of natural causes. But those who do survive will have indeed turned to him. For that same reason, Paul of Tarsus wrote in his epistle to the Philippians, urging them to do all things apart from murmuring and disputing, that you would be perfect and with unmixed blood, blameless children of Yahweh in the midst of a race crooked and perverted, among whom you appear as luminaries in this society, upholding the word of life for a boast with me in the day of Christ, that not in vain have I run, nor in vain have I labored. So where it says at the end of verse 2 here, that even with this trial, the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city, perhaps we see a promise of hope that the remnant of the people of Yahweh shall maintain some sense of Christian community. This would accord with the commandment of Christ that Christians love one another and keep his commandments, and in that manner, both the Father and he would come to dwell with them, as it says in John chapter 14. This would also correspond with the final clause of the prophecy of Malachi, where it says in Malachi chapter 4, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So we see that the message of Elijah the prophet must go out to the children of Israel before the trials of the children of Israel are brought to an end. Perhaps that is how the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Currently, the hordes of Satan, the flood from the mouth of the serpent, have flooded into every white Christian nation. The wives and daughters of white Christians are indeed being ravished by aliens. The houses are indeed being looted and pillaged, if not literally, then by the oppressive government taxes, which have been imposed mostly for the support of those same aliens. So the niggers are going to get their due one way or another. So we do not need to see a literal fulfillment of this prophecy in the sense of what happened in ancient times when a city was taken by an invading army. Yet every aspect of this prophecy and the one in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 as well as in Revelation chapter 20 is being fulfilled today even without the force of arms. But at the same time, we cannot rule out a possibility that before it is all over, it will escalate even further, and there will be a force of arms. However, the scripture always promises the hope of God, which is held out exclusively to the children of Israel. Then Yahweh shall go forth, and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. The phrase, as when he fought in the day of battle, seems to invoke a recollection of the ancient wars against the Canaanites, 
in which the Israelites, with the help of their God, were victorious over nations much greater than themselves. Here we have a promise which corresponds to the promised deliverance in Christ, which is depicted in Revelation chapter 19, following the forthcoming fall of Mystery Babylon. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Subsequently, that chapter of the Revelation depicts the marriage supper of the Lamb, where Christ takes the children of Israel as his bride, and they need white and clean wedding garments. And all of the other nations, who are his enemies, are forever destroyed. The same picture is drawn in the corresponding prophecy found in Ezekiel chapter 39 using somewhat similar terms where Yahweh says to the hordes of Gog and Magog and I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand and will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel thou and all thy bands and the people that is with thee and, comparing this to Revelation chapter 19, I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Thou shalt fall upon the open field, for I have spoken it, saith Yahweh God. And I will send a fire on Magog, and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles. And they shall know that I am Yahweh. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name any more. And the nations, the nations of Israel, shall know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One in Israel. And Zechariah continues with verse 4. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. The sun rises in the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Just about 550 years after Zechariah had written this passage, Yahshua Christ stood on the Mount of Olives and sighted from this very portion of Zechariah's prophecy, where it is written in Mark chapter 14, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. One chapter earlier. Zechariah's prophecy here is not in reference to the literal Jerusalem. So we cannot expect the reference to the Mount of Olives to be literal. Yet the Mount of Olives is a significant feature in the Gospel. Christ had often taught his disciples in the Mount of Olives, which we see in John chapter 8.
It is the place from where he initiated his triumphant ride on the foal of an ass as the rightful king coming into the gates of Jerusalem, as we see in Matthew chapter 21 and Luke chapter 18. It is also the place where Christ gave his famous discourse in reference to the time of the end, which is recorded in three of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is also the place to which he resorted to prayer each evening, after teaching in the temple each day during the closing weeks of his ministry, as we see recorded in Luke chapter 21, verse 37. Finally, it was the place where the Garden of Gethsemane, or Gethsemane, was located, as we see in Matthew chapter 26, Mark 14, and John chapter 18, where Christ was seized by the Judeans and taken to his final earthly trial. But the Mount of Olives is more significant in other ways. First, the only occasions where it is called by that name in the Old Testament are here in Zechariah, which in its totality is indeed a messianic prophecy relating to Yahshua Christ, and again in 2 Samuel chapter 15 verse 30, where it is called Olivet in the King James Version, where David went up to weep after his son Absalom had conspired against him. Perhaps this foreshadows Christ weeping on the Mount of Olives for the trials which he suffered because of the treachery of his own children, his son Jacob. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, as it is identified in Acts chapter 1 verse 12, it was the place of the ascension of the risen Christ. So it is not only fitting that it is used symbolically for the return of Christ, as it says in Acts chapter 1, that the same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So the Mount of Olives figured prominently in the ministry of Christ. It may also be observed that the Mount of Olives is said to be 86 meters taller than the Temple Mount, and Christ is the only way to overcome the judgments, the judgments of the law, which were executed from the Temple. With all of this, we can only deduce the following. Christ returns to stand upon the Mount of Olives, allegorically, because the Mount of Olives here is a symbol of his gospel, of his ministry, of his ascension to heaven as his gospel is the only way to the kingdom of heaven for his people. And just as the gospel was the point of division between those who were his sheep and those who were not, here his allegorical return to the Mount of Olives also causes great division among the people. And Zechariah continues, And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yeah, ye shall flee like as you fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And Yahweh my God shall come and all the saints with thee. The coming of the saints. Described by Enoch and Jude.
and of course in Revelation chapter 19. The name Azal is obscure. However, the best estimation of its identity was first made by the French archaeologist Charles Clermont Ganot, who in the 1870s had identified it with the modern Arab place name of Wadi Yasul, which is also apparent from the Septuagint, where the Greek rendering is Yasul, I-A-S-O-L. The Wadi Yasul River I'm sorry, the Wadi Yasul is a river valley which joins with the Kidron Valley at the southern end of the Mount of Olives. This account given here by Zechariah is not found in our scriptures. In the Antiquities of the Juda Judeans, in Book 9, Flavius Josephus wrote, While Uzziah was in this state, and making preparation for his future, for the future, he was corrupted in his mind by pride, and became insolent, and on this account of that abundance which he had of things that will soon perish, and despised that power which is of eternal duration, which consisted in piety toward God, and in the observation of the laws, so he fell by occasion of the good success of his affairs, and was carried headlong into those sins of his father, which the splendor of that prosperity he enjoyed, and the glorious actions he had done, led him into, while he was not able to govern himself well about them. Accordingly, when a remarkable day was come, and a general festival was to be celebrated, he, meaning King Uzziah, put on the holy garment, and went into the temple to offer incense to God upon the golden altar, which he was prohibited to do by Azariah the high priest, who had eighty priests with him, and who told him that it was not lawful for him to offer sacrifice, and that none besides the posterity of Aaron were permitted to do so. And when they cried out, that he must go out of the temple and not transgress against God, he was wroth at them, and threatened to kill them, unless they would hold their peace. In the meantime a great earthquake shook the ground, and a rent was made in the temple, and the bright rays of the sun shone through it, and fell upon the king's face, insomuch that the leprosy seized upon him immediately, and before the city, at a place called Enrogel, half Half the mountain broke off from the rest on from the rest on the west and rolled itself half a mile and stood still at the east mountain till the roads as well as the king's gardens were spoiled by the destruction or I'm sorry by the obstruction. Now as soon as the priest saw that the king's face was infected with leprosy, they told him of the calamity he was under, and commanded that he should go out of the city as a polluted person. Hereupon he was so confounded at the sad distemper, and sensible that he was not at liberty to oppose that, he did as he was commanded, and underwent this miserable and terrible punishment, for an intention beyond what befitted a man to have, and for that impiety against God which was implied therein. So he abode out of the city for some time, and lived a private life, while his son Jonathan took the government, after which he died with grief and anxiety at what had happened to him.
when he had lived sixty-eight years, and reigned of them fifty-two, and was buried by himself in his own gardens. While the passages concerning Uzziah, which are found in Scripture, mention the incident with the priests, and his having been smitten with leprosy, they do not mention any earthquake, as we see here in Zechariah. Evidently, Josephus was working for more complete copies of the scriptures, something which is also evident in other places in his writings. In the mid-1980s, certain Jewish geologists, because at the present time, if you're not a Jew, you're not going to pick up a shovel in Palestine, because at the present time, Jews have full control over archaeology and geology in Palestine, in the mid-1980s, certain Jewish geologists, whose names aren't worth mentioning, found evidence supporting the occurrence of an earthquake and a landslide from the Mount of Olives into the valley now known as the Wadi Yasul, Zechariah's Azal, where the king's gardens were located, substantiating the history of Josephus in that regard and further supporting the identification of the Azal which is mentioned by Zechariah here in this passage. Very shortly after the death of Uzziah, the scriptures began to describe the Assyrian invasions of Israel conducted by Tiglath-Pileser. Here in Zechariah, the subject of the statement, And ye shall flee, is ambiguous, but it is the enemies of the children of Israel who are the subject of the passage, and not the children of Israel themselves. Since we know little of Uzziah's earthquake, it is uncertain whom the earthquake had affected, and perhaps it affected the enemies of the Israelites. But of course we may only offer that as a conjecture. The history is too fragmented. However, the Septuagint provides an entirely different reading of the verse, which we actually prefer. And the valley of my mountain shall be closed up, and the valley of the mountain shall be joined onto Yasal. Brenton wrote Yasad for some strange reason. And shall be blocked up as it was blocked up in the days of the earthquake, in the days of Hosias, king of Judah, Uzziah. And the Yahweh my God shall come, and all the saints with him. And for this alternate rendering in a Septuagint, we have no need to comment further. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 6, And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to Yahweh, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light, and it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, and half of them toward the hinder sea. In the summer and in winter shall it be. We have already seen how many of the prophecies of Zechariah foreshadowed the words of Yahshua Christ found in the Revelation, and these may certainly be added to them. In the description of the city of God found in Revelation chapter 22 we read, And he showed me the words of John, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, 
which bare twelve manner of fruits, one for each of the tribes of Israel, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God, and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and he shall need no candle, neither light of the sun. For Yahweh God gives them light, and they shall reign for ever and ever. The same things that Zechariah describes here. A little earlier that same description, in Revelation chapter 21, John wrote of the city, And I saw no temple therein, for Yahweh God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city has no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved, referring to the children of Israel, shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. Of course, at the beginning of this, this I'm sorry, at the beginning of the description, the city is depicted as the bride, the wife of the Lamb, and on its gates are written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, where we see that no one else shall ever be admitted into it. The In the opening verses, I'm sorry, in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, there are two trees in the midst of the garden, the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the revelation, at the end, there is only the tree of life. There is no more tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Therefore, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, represented in Genesis by the serpent, who is also Satan and the devil, must fall into the category of every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted, but which shall be rooted up. It must, because by Revelation chapter 22, it's no longer there. And Yahweh shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord, or one Yahweh, and his name one. I and my Father are one, as Christ said at the beginning of the sins of the children of Israel. As it is described in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people demanded an earthly king. In the end, Yahweh shall once again be their king, in the person of the Lamb, Yahshua Christ. At that time all shall indeed know that Yahshua Christ and Yahweh God are one, as Christ himself had professed. Therefore he is described as King of Kings and Lord of Lords in Revelation chapters 17 and 19, and by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6. There shall be one Lord. Here in Zechariah chapter 13, which is also related to this prophecy, as we have illustrated, we read that it shall come to pass in that day, saith Yahweh of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall be no more remembered. In Micah chapter 4, another prophecy corresponding to that day, as it says, For all the people will walk every one in the name of his God. 
and we will walk in the name of Yahweh, our God, forever and ever. However, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 it says, For all the gods of the people are idols. But Yahweh made the heavens. And likewise in Psalm 96, it says, For all the gods of the nations are idols. But Yahweh made the heavens. So, if all of the gods of the nations are idols, and here in Zechariah it says that Yahweh shall cut off all of the idols, how does it say in Micah that all people will walk, everyone in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever? There is only one way, and that is found in Obadiah verse 16, where it speaks of those other people they shall be as though they had not been. Micah must be correct that the destiny of the other nations is the same as that of their gods. In that manner, after the prophecy is fulfilled, there will be but one Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of only Israel. And in Zechariah 14.10 we read, All the land shall be turned as a plain, from Geba to Ruman, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up, and inhabited in her place, from Benjamin's gate under the place of the first gate, under the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananiel unto the king's winepresses. And men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And here from these place names, we see that only the land in the immediate vicinity of Jerusalem is described. All of these places bordered on a city. However, once again, Jerusalem is representative of the people of God, and not of the ancient city. So perhaps this prophecy is also an allegory. As we see in a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked made straight, and the rough places of the plain. Jerusalem, for the people of God, will be a smooth and easy place. Here it says, all the land shall be turned as a plain describing the boundaries of the city. It's simply telling us that Jerusalem, for the people of God, shall be a smooth and easy place. Jerusalem in ancient times was full of mountains and very a very difficult place to tra traverse. So this is certainly indicative of the same thing which Isaiah was prophesying. And then in verse 12, And this shall be the plague wherewith Yahweh will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. Zechariah is the prophet of the Holocaust we've all been waiting for. In Ezekiel chapter 39, after Yahweh addresses the hordes of Gog and Magog, 
and tells them that he will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. He then tells them that he will smite thy bow out of thy left hand and will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands and the people that is with thee. I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Thou shalt fall upon the open field, for I have spoken it, saith Yahweh God. And I will send a fire upon Magog, and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles. And they shall know that I am Yahweh. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let them pollute my holy name any more. And the nation shall know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One in Israel. The nations are the nations of Israel, as we shall see. The word should not have been translated in the King James Version here as heathen. Then we read something differently here in Zechariah in verse 13, which is ostensibly a different aspect of what is prophesied to happen in verse 12. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from Yahweh shall be among them, and they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 contain a parallelism, each describing the same events from different aspects. So it is with these last two verses of Zechariah here on a smaller scale, as well as Zechariah chapters 12 and 13, compared with Zechariah chapter 14 on a larger scale. In Ezekiel chapter 38, speaking of the same event, where the armies of bastards come against the mountains of Israel, we read, And it shall come to pass at the same time when God shall come against the land of Israel, saith Yahweh God, that my fury shall come up in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. That earthquake has happened at Azal in the days of Uzziah. So that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down, and the steep places shall fall, probably speaking of great and mighty nations. And every wall shall fall to the ground. Mystery Babylon, perhaps. We can only conjecture how this is going to turn out. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith Yahweh God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother, so the hordes of Gog and Magog, the armies of bastards, are prophesied to turn upon one another, both in Ezekiel and here in Zechariah. And I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands, and upon the many people that are with him, and overflowing rain, and great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. And therefore, as it says here in Zechariah, their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, etc., etc. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, 
and they shall know that I am Yahweh. And once again, those many nations are the nations of Israel, as we shall see. And Judah, Zechariah 14.14, And Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the heathen, or of all the nations, round about, so it's not talking about the Israelite nations, shall be gathered together gold and silver, and apparel in great abundance. Just as it says in Micah chapter 4, which correlates with these chapters of Zechariah, although it is of broader scope, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass. And thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. And so, Zechariah 14:15, And so shall be the plague of the horse, and of the mule, and of the camel, and of the ass, and of all the beasts that shall be in the tents, as this plague. Now, now perhaps these animals are used as allegories for people, which is a possibility that happens often in Scripture. In Joel, the term beast of the field is used of the children of Israel. And they are the beasts of the field, the lion of Judah, the stag of Naphtali, and so on and so forth, the serpent of Dan. The plague must be a reference to the plague of verse 12, where it says of those people gathered against Jerusalem, that their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. So just as it was, if this is not an allegory for people, for dogs, pigs, and goats, so just as it was when certain of the cities of the Canaanites were taken, even their beasts were unacceptable to God. And it shall pass, I'm sorry, and it shall come to pass, verse 16, that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king Yahweh of hosts and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And I could hear the universalists say it now. Aha! Thinks wrong. The scripture's wrong. The other scriptures are wrong. Yahweh's a universalist. Many scoffers, even certain so-called Christian identity pastors, like that pudgy little rabbi in Chicago, look at this verse and proclaim that Yahweh is a universalist after all, and that this verse somehow proves that so-called people from among the other races, even those who are not from Adam, are going to abide in the kingdom of heaven. But that is not the case. Sorry. This verse, which reads much the same in the Septuagint version, does not support universalism at all. Firstly, White Christian nations have fought one against another throughout the Christian age. We can clearly perceive that in the struggles of these last days, there are white Christians, and there are whites who are Israelites, whether they know that they're Christian or not, on all sides of every conflict, whether the conflict be political, social, or philosophical, and even in the event of an actual armed conflict. That circumstance will remain until all of the enemies of Christ and every plant which Yahweh did not plant are eliminated. Secondly, 
There are populations of whites descended from the ancient Israelites scattered throughout the entire world. So we must examine the other prophecies concerning the punishment of Israel and the day of the wrath of Yahweh and discover what they say about the nations of people who are not descended from the Israelites. Because Zechariah cannot be interpreted, purposely interpreted, in a way which contradicts those other prophets. Doing so, we find Jeremiah chapter 30. And the word of Yahweh that says, For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, speaking to the children of Israel. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. And the same promise, if you didn't get that, the same promise is repeated in Jeremiah chapter 46 where there is a message of assurance to the children of Israel following the Babylonian captivity in the, for the aftermath of the Babylonian captivity, where it says, But fear not thou, O my servant Jacob, and be not dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save thee from afar off, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and be in rest and at ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob my servant, saith Yahweh, for I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven thee, but I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure, yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. And this accords with Obadiah verses 15 and 16 where it says, For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall be returned upon thine own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. Secondly, the feasts are commandments of the law given to the children of Israel exclusively. As it says in the psalm, in Psalm 147, He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. David is praising Yahweh because the other nations have not received the law, the statutes, the judgments. As it says in Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, which is an invocation of the promises to the fathers. For I am Yahweh, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. So if Yahweh does not change, and if Yahweh has promised to, to preserve Israel, and the laws, which include the feasts, are only for Israel, why would other nations be commanded to attend the feasts? The Apostle Jude addressed his epistle to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. And he called the outsiders at their communions spots in their feasts of charity. However if, however, if Yahweh keeps his promise to make a full end of all the nations where he has driven the children of Israel, 
then those spots will be no more. With all of this, we must acknowledge that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem will also be an Israelite of one scattered tribe of Israel or another, if there are any left at all. Only because they are Israel are they saved, and only because they are Israel are they commanded to attend the feasts. There won't be any spots in our Feast of Charity after a full end is made of all the other nations, and they shall be as though they had not been. And Zechariah says in verse 17, And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. The word all is added to the text here. However, in the end, the addition is immaterial. Paul had written in Galatians chapter 3, Know ye therefore that they which are of the faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the nations through faith, preached before, preached ahead of time or in the past, the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed those nations which God foresaw that he would justify through the faith. They're only the Israelite nations. So then they which be of the faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Verse 7 in Galatians 3 is a conditional sentence of the type which expresses a factual implication. If one is not a child of Abraham, one cannot be of the faith of Abraham. Because Abraham believed that his seed would come from his loins. But the King James Version translated the same Greek word as both heathen and nations in verse 8, which makes it appear as if Paul had said something other than he actually did. We corrected that here in our own reading. In Romans chapter 4, Paul informs us of what he means when he speaks of the faith of Abraham. He defines it for us. Wherein part he wrote, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace, to the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, Paul speaking to Romans, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before whom he believed, even God, who quickens the dead, and here's the key, and calls those things which be not as though they were, meaning that those nations did not exist when God gave the promise to Abraham. They would exist because they came from Abraham's loins. And Paul stresses that in Romans 4.18 in the very next passage where he says, Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. So the faith of Abraham was that his seed, 
his offspring, which came out of his own loins, would become many nations, and that those nations, as Paul said in that same chapter, would be the heirs of the world. So according to Paul of Tarsus, all the nations who were blessed in Abraham's seed are all of the nations which Yahweh foresaw as coming from the seed of Abraham. Since Yahweh calleth those things which be not as though they were. In Galatians chapters 3 and 4, Paul then proceeded to explain that those same promises narrowed that seed of Abraham down to the children of Israel and explains that those who had the law as their schoolmaster in order to bring them to Christ were indeed those same heirs. Therefore, all of the families of the earth, after all of the heathen are destroyed, are those same families of Israel of the seed of Abraham, to whom the promise was originally made, but who had not yet existed because they came from Abraham's loins through Isaac and Jacob. So as Paul says, the promise is certain to all the seed. And these are also described further here in verse 18 of Zechariah chapter 14. And if the family of Egypt go not up, and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague, wherewith Yahweh will smite the nations, not the heathen, the nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt, and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. The text of verse 19 is a conclusion to what had preceded, not an introduction to something new. And again, before we consider the possibility that this verse refers to anyone but the children of Israel, we must correctly determine what is meant by the family of Egypt, because it sure as hell is not talking about Egyptians. In Hosea chapter 11, we read, When Israel was a child, then I loved him, and called my son out of Egypt. And in reference to Christ, so that he could be the firstborn among many brethren, and no different from his people, we read in Matthew chapter 2 concerning Joseph, Mary, and the Christ child. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of, the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. The phrase family of Egypt is an allegory which refers to the children of Israel who were in captivity in Egypt. Simply because it was fulfilled in Christ doesn't mean it was not fulfilled in Jacob as it explicitly states in Hosea chapter 11. The punishment of Egypt is their punishment if they continue to refuse to keep the, the statutes of Yahweh. In that day, there shall be upon the bells of the horses holiness under Yahweh, and the pots in Yahweh's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yeah, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness under Yahweh of hosts, and all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them, and seethe therein. Paul of Tarsus had said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor, and some to dishonor. 
If a man therefore purge himself from these, the vessels of wood and earth, to dishonor, if a man therefore purge himself of these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. So Paul advised that in spite of the fact that there were vessels for dishonor in a great house, that a man should nevertheless purge himself of those vessels, so that he may prepare himself for good works. All Christians should indeed heed that advice. Throughout their history, however, the children of Israel refused to purge themselves of those vessels of dishonor. Therefore, here in Zechariah, once again, Yahweh promises to do it for them, because all the vessels in the kingdom of heaven will be holiness under Yahweh of hosts. Every pot shall be just like the bowls before the altar, which were precious. And so we know that this indeed refers to people as vessels. And we read the final promise of Yahweh in Zechariah. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of Yahweh of hosts. And here we have it. The Holocaust that the Edomite Jews have been crying about for so many years now, which in reality has never yet happened, is a promise of Yahweh our God, and it will happen. And when it does, when it does finally happen, their flesh shall be consumed away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth their lying tongues. Just as it prophecies of the Edomite Jews in Obadiah that the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau for stubble and they shall kindle in them and devour them and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau for Yahweh has spoken it. There are many proofs which we have often discussed in these commentaries that the people now known as Jews are chiefly descended from the Edomites of the Old Testament. There are also biblical proofs that the Edomites are indeed Canaanites, as Esau took wives of the Hittites, who were a branch of the Canaanites, and went to dwell among the Horites, who were another branch of the Canaanites. And you can bet that all those Edomite sons that Esau had those dukes of Edom listed in Genesis chapter 36 were intermarrying with those Horites as well as Esau himself who took wives of the Hittites. And all of this is evident in Genesis chapter 36. However, people descending from the Canaanites became known later in history by many other names as well. Today, they are spread throughout and intermixed into all of the Arab races, as well as many of the so-called Negroes. The word Arab comes from a Hebrew word which means mixed. And in turn, they spread into India, and all along the south of Asia, as far as the Philippines, if not even beyond the Philippines. They were bringing black slaves to India and Asia and the South Pacific Islands and even into China for many centuries before the start of the Christian era. 
through the early settlers of South America and the Caribbean. Both Jewish and Arab Canaanites have polluted all the blood of the so-called Latin races. And there ain't one of them that's Latin. And there are many Europeans who do not identify as Jews who are also Canaanite in part. And even where the non-white races may not have mixed with the Canaanites, their origins may nevertheless be found with that same tree of the knowledge of good and evil because Yahweh has not taken credit for the creation of any of them, and they are all ostensibly a part of that flood of the mouth of the serpent sent to persecute the woman who represents the people of God. But as we have said, Satan is presently being employed to punish the children of Israel, and Satan will be destroyed in turn. All of these people, that's the whole pattern throughout the Old Testament. Read of the fate of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Egyptians. All of the people of the Old Testament are given up by Yahweh God and punished because they were used to punish the children of Israel. This is all about the children of Israel and nobody else. And in the end, only the children of Israel will be left. There is a holocaust coming upon the world, as the Apostle Peter had written, that whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished, but the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And after this holocaust it is certain that there will not be any Jews left to collect reparations or any Negroes to follow after them. And there won't be one chink, one spick, or one squat monster, or one of anything else. We owe them a holocaust, and they are going to get one. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Only those who were produced from the tree of life, our Adamic race, are those who are written into the book of life. Thank you for listening. This concludes our presentation of Zechariah. I'm not certain yet what I'm going to present next Friday. Hebrews is up next in, in the long run. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh and good night.